Welcome to Office Hours with EAB. On today's episode, the head of Penn State University's fundraising team joins EAB's own advancement expert, Jeff Martin. The two talk about the challenges university fundraisers have faced over the past 12 months. They give us a peek into the future of virtual events and offer tips for managing fundraising teams and gift proposals going forward. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to the podcast today. We're here on Office Hours with EAB. My name is Jeff Martin. I'm a senior director with EAB who oversees a lot of our advancement research. And I'm joined today by my colleague and partner from Penn State University, the Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations, Rich Bundy. Rich, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Excellent. So, Figure we can jump right into it. It's been a pretty tough year so far for a lot of university, college and university advancement teams. My team did a little bit of work a month or two ago looking at how the first part of fiscal year 21 has gone. And while there were some bright spots, by and large, it's it's been very tough. The median institution saw uh, nearly a double-digit drop in total dollars raised. Uh, big retrenchment and major gifts, uh, lots of donor declines, et cetera, et cetera. I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. What are you all seeing at, at Penn State? Yeah, well, it, you're absolutely right that it's been a challenging year, um, really uh, at risk of overstating the uh, the word that's been too, too used this past 12 months, unprecedented for folks who are in the, the industry. Um, and, and Penn State's experience, I think, has been like most of our of our peers, uh, a little bit of a mixed bag. We have some bright spots, and, and we've tried to find uh, find those bright spots to help keep morale up and keep momentum in our campaign. Um, but yeah, our our experience has been very similar to what we've seen nationwide. Our uh, our commitment number is uh, significantly down from where we were at this year at this time last year. Uh, and, and you referenced the research that you did at the midpoint of the fiscal year. We were, at the time, we were down about uh, nine and a half percent year to year. That that has continued to go down. We're we're down now about thirty percent. Pains me to say that, but um, you know, from for some perspective, uh, last year was the all time record fundraising year for Penn State, um, and and we managed to do that even though the final quarter of last year was really bumpy. Um, We've maintained progress in our campaign. We're still on track, on time, uh, and on pace for the campaign as we've pivoted to a, a new uh, reality for fundraising. So we are actually on pace to meet the target fundraising goal that we set for the institution this year, even though it's a it's a 30% decrease from where we were last year at this time because we built into our planning for FY21 uh, a, a, um, a a delta between you know the most successful year of fundraising and fundraising in a work work from remote pandemic, um, and 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 many of our other uh, data points reflect that. So we're like most institutions, we're down a little bit in donors, but we're actually ahead of schedule for what we predicted for the for the year this year, um, down compared to, to last year. And as your own research uh, pointed out to us, uh, one of the real bright spots for us 
is a significant increase in the number of uh, $25,000 up and up proposals uh, and a very significant increase in the number of those proposals that have been funded uh, uh, by our donors. So we think there are some bright spots there and, and maybe some lessons for us as we move into the what we hope will be a post-pandemic fundraising uh, paradigm here in the in the weeks to come, months to come. Yeah, I think uh, it's a smart approach to go into this, as you said, unprecedented fiscal year with a more modest fundraising goal, something more achievable. Funny enough, in our research, we didn't find those to be all that common. We asked uh, a few months ago, I, I guess it would have been towards the start of the fiscal year, actually, we asked chief advancement officers within the membership, uh, you know, how many of you have presidents and boards that are expecting the same fundraising performance as last year or higher fundraising performance compared to last year? Three quarters of chief advancement officers said that they were being held to the same or a higher standard. Yeah. At the time, we then followed up and, and asked, how many of you are actually expecting to increase fundraising and it wasn't more than a third, which is tracking now with, with what we're seeing performance looking like. Uh, of course, so much of that total dollar success has to do with very big gifts, right. what we would call uh, principal gifts. They've come to comprise a, a bigger and bigger share of total fundraising revenues, especially across the past decade, although you could play that back. Honestly, any number of years, you'd see the trend up. Uh, uh, obtaining. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit how you all have fared and, and how you've seen your colleagues at other institutions as well when you've had the chance to catch up with them. How you all have fared at, at the so-called top of the giving pyramid? Yeah, that that's one of the areas where we've seen the greatest uh, uh, decline in year-to-year -year activities. So, so I mentioned that we're uh, about 30% uh, behind where we were last year at this time. That that uh, equates to about $100 million uh, in in fundraising that we haven't been able to, to replicate from year to year. Um, but within that $100 million, uh, just two gifts last year account for about $66 million of that total. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're, we're doing uh, extraordinary work in, the, in that $25,000 to 10 million range. It's the 10 million and above where we have not been able to reproduce uh, last year's gifts. And it takes a lot of million dollar gifts to make a $66 million gift. Um, so, so that has been, um, in, in many ways, that has been the, the main point of deviation from last year's. Uh, our donors have, have continued to be very generous, uh, but at the, at the highest level of, of philanthropy, um, we, we just haven't seen that uh, replicated again this year. I really shouldn't speak for my peers at other institutions, but I can share anecdotally that I'm hearing the same kinds of things uh, that, that our donors at the high end, um, uh, some institutions are still getting those gifts, but fewer of them. And at institutions like ours, where, where they're a little bit fewer and farther between, um, maybe we're not getting them this year. I, I will say, though, that we're having some very good conversations with donors about gifts that are in that range. Um, and so we're still having productive conversations. Uh, but I think that there's still enough uncertainty out there, despite all of the wealth creation and, you know, all of the positive signs that we're seeing 
nationally uh, at this juncture. Um, I, I think there's still some hesitation to make that kind of a commitment in, in such an uncertain environment. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that um, if we continue on the trajectory that we're on with the pandemic, that some of those gifts will start to, to uh, fall our direction again. There seems to be so much competition from other nonprofits, healthy competition. There are lots of, uh, lots of very worthy causes out there right now related to um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related to the pandemic response. How have you and how have your fundraising teams navigated through this environment in which there are so many uh, compelling, urgent causes that donors could lend their support to? Well, so you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the growth of the nonprofit sector has been extraordinary over the arc of my career. And, and we are seeing increased competition um, from, from all, all sectors of the, of the industry. Um, I, I like to think, actually, that we've learned, we, we in higher education have, have, have learned some things from our uh, colleagues in particularly in the, the social services organizations where, um, you know, they have to be, for lack of a better word, a little bit scrappier than, than we do in higher education, uh, especially if you're a small nonprofit and you're raising your operating budget. Um, you, you know, you, there's a, there is a, there is an inherent urgency there that, that perhaps we don't have in higher education. And so, so, you know, if you want to look to, um, innovators in the nonprofit sector. Um, many of the the kind of the neat things that I'm seeing, the exciting things that I'm seeing, are coming out of the smaller, again, scrappier nonprofits. Um, when we can apply those uh, tools at scale, they're they're really terrific in the higher ed setting. Um, but not all of them can be can be applied at scale. And so I think you know to to answer your question about how do we keep urgency in the higher ed space, um, you know, I, I, I think what it really boils down to in my mind is the, the core message, the case for support that we're able to make. And, and I think about um, how, how donors who support higher education look to us to answer the, the pervasive questions that are affecting society right now or to be involved in answering those questions. And to the extent that their philanthropy can provide uh, meaningful uh, support to those uh, queries, those investigations, that critical research, um, that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the sweet spot for us. Uh, that, that particularly if you're at a, and I, I mean no disrespect to smaller universities, but when you're at a big comprehensive institution like Penn State, um, that we have a lot of bandwidth where uh, where we can tackle some of the really big questions that face society, um, and and donor support actually is the is the uh, jet fuel to allow us to do that. That's something that my team has spent a lot of time investigating: a long term shift in donors giving out of what you might call a sense of loyalty to their alma mater. Now they're giving because they want to change the world in some way. And they're giving to the institution they give to, not 
solely because they have some prior affiliation with it. Honestly, in many cases, it's more because that institution is the vehicle through which they will affect that change. And for a university like Penn State, as you as you said, you just have so much bandwidth, so much. Uh, you're such a powerhouse of answering some of those big questions of moving the ball forward on uh, on the research uh, on the education and access that that will really have the impact that that donors want. One thing I'm I'm curious about fundraising from donors who give out a se- out of a sense of loyalty is is a very different game than fundraising from donors who want to get their their hands their hands a little bit dirty want to get into the nuts and bolts of, of a project want to see the vision for how something is going to have that transformative impact on society how has your talent strategy shifted as donors needs have changed working with a donor you know when they need to interface with eight different departments on campus and some of the smartest researchers in the world um, from the position of fundraiser must be a, an incredibly complex and complicated endeavor. Yeah, it, it is. And um, and I think that's, you know, actually one of the challenges of, challenges of, a, of a, such a big place as Penn State. Um, again, no disrespect to, to smaller institutions, but, you know, we're, we're one university geographically distributed across 24 campuses in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And, and our development operation is responsible for fundraising for all of that, um, and our College of Medicine and Athletics and our museum, and you know the list goes on and on. Um, I, I think that uh, one of the strategies that we've employed uh, uh, successfully in in the current campaign that we're in is the creation of an Office of Strategic Initiatives, where we hired. Uh, these were internal hires, uh, both. Uh, both of the initial uh, positions were senior fundraising professionals um, who we who we essentially took um, took off of the playing field as fundraisers and instead said, now what we want you to do is to apply the knowledge that you have as a fundraiser to bringing together the various parts and components of the institution around these complex multidisciplinary ideas. And we have a set of strategic priorities in the campaign that that don't neatly fit into a college or a campus or an academic discipline because they draw from expertise in multiple areas. Um, and it takes somebody who can be the the um, the facilitator of those institutional conversations to help uh, put a proposal or put an idea in front of donors that is cogent. Uh, that doesn't require you to talk to eight different people in eight different departments to, to get the, the core of the idea, but where, where we've distilled it into something that is um, uh, accessible to, to our donors. Uh, and so they're, they're working on some of the, some of the, the uh, central initiatives, the defining initiatives of this cam- campaign for Penn State uh, we have an, an initiative called Invent Penn State, which is the economic development um, aspirations for Penn State as we as we work to, um, uh, to to grow the economic strength of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, we have an initiative called Energy University, which uh, recognizes that you know Penn State is ranked uh, among the top 
energy institutions in the world uh, with with um, expertise uh, from you know traditional oil and gas uh, fossil fuels all the way to batteries and uh, renewables and everything in between and and plus all of the related pieces around law and policy and and so so how do you bring all those disparate pieces together and put a compelling vision in front of a donor? Uh, it's been a successful uh, test run for us, and I anticipate that we'll actually grow that area as we um, ho- hopefully have additional resources to do so. Because there, are the I think the challenges that face uh, society are not quite as neatly uh, defined by academic disciplines as they may once have been, and, and we're going to need to bring together uh, you know variety of thinking around uh, solutions to, to creative solutions to the, to the challenges that face us. I think that's such a smart approach. The of course the challenges you're facing from uh, your position in the advancement office mirror those faced by the academy itself. I know there are lots of conversations around, you know, how do we attend to respond to 21st century challenges when we have very traditional organizational structure on the academic side. Yeah. I think your your innovative approach of the Office of Strategic Initiatives is you know, rethinking the the sorts of roles you have in your in your office, a, a really smart part of your talent strategy and thinking about uh, the talent you have on your team. Uh, of course, no advancement office can operate without without talent, without the resources coming from the institution, without fundraisers out in the field. I've I have to say I've I've been dismayed to see through our research that while so many senior institutional leaders, presidents and the like are saying advancement is a cornerstone part of how we will recover from this pandemic, from this recession. It is a a key revenue driver for us. At the same time, more than four out of five institutions cut their advancement budgets across this fiscal year. It was just shy of half had double digit cuts in place. Uh, I'm curious the the conversations you all are having in the leadership team at Penn State. How are you thinking about resourcing advancement in what what's honestly a, a very difficult time for any institution's budget? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and and I just have to say how um, fortunate I feel that we're not uh, one of those institutions that took a major uh, budget reduction. Um, uh, the development and alumni relations program at Penn State uh, participated in the in the exact same percentage budget reduction as the rest of the institution, um, and uh, we were able to to we were able to essentially uh, cover that budget reduction with uh, a couple of strategic retire- retirements uh, where we um, restructured ever so slightly and didn't have to refill a position. Or, or where we had some salary savings because of vacancies for a, a period of time. We have been in a bit of a hiring, um, not a freeze, we're calling it a hiring chill. Um, uh, and, and that has allowed us to, to uh, save some, some money. And of course, you know, not traveling this year, not having events like we normally do this year means that, our, that uh, we anticipate that we'll have a pretty significant carry forward, most of which will return to the, to the university um, to help in other areas that may have been hit a little bit harder than we are. 
it, you know, longer term, we've articulated in, in the strategic plan that we've developed for uh, the, the advancement function at Penn State, a pretty ambitious goal to uh, increase our frontline fundraising staff by 50% in the next five years. Um, uh, that the, the goal is to get uh, the number of prospects under management from 12,000 to 18,000 uh, by 2027. Um, uh, our, our, um, we, we, have, we think we have the resources. We think we know where the resources are uh, already uh, in, our, um, in our institution to, to cover that without having to, to take a dollar from someplace else. Um, but but it'll also require us to think a little bit differently about uh, about some things. So we're we're ever mindful of opportunities to achieve efficiencies and um, you know to explore how technology might allow us to do things differently, more effectively. Um, you, you know, I mean, I think most of my peers are are starting to have conversations about you know what what does it look like when we begin to return to our offices and perhaps a a subset of our employee base decides that they'd really rather continue to work remotely, maybe we don't need all of that office space that, that we currently have. And, and can we save some money there and reinvest it in other priorities? So, um, you know, the, the, budget, um, the budget puzzle is always complex, um, but, but I, I, I consider myself uh, uh, extraordinarily fortunate that, that uh, the the um, the message from our board and from the president and provost is that development is important. Uh, it will be critical to the to how the institution emerges from from this challenging time, uh, and they've matched um, rhetoric with action. That's wonderful to hear. You know your comments about coming out of the pandemic. Maybe we'll think differently about way we organize our workforce raises for me the question of what else will we think differently about when the pandemic started essentially everything we know about advancement just had to get thrown out the window advancement uh thrives on in-person relationships going out visiting with major gift prospects having big events reunions homecoming happy hours for young alumni, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that was just impossible. Just overnight had to stop and advancement had to rewrite the playbook. A lot of virtual engagement for alumni, a lot of virtual uh, commencements and homecomings and the like. Cultivation occurs for most institutions exclusively on Zoom or Teams or what have you. Nowadays, so basically every every rule of the road currently is different, but it won't have to be in uh, insert time period here. If I could tell you the exact number of months, I could probably, <laughs> you know, I don't know, make a killing on the market. Right, uh, fire on that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I'm curious for your thoughts. What do you see snapping back to business as usual? Because it worked. If it's not broke, don't fix it. And what do you see as perhaps forever being different about the way advancement does its work? Yeah, I, you know, Jeff, I think that that's uh, a huge question. Um, and, and I'd be lying if I told you that I had answers to the question. I have some, I have some hunches, you know, things that I, that I kind of mull over in my mind uh, when I'm 
reflecting on on our own path back into our offices. I don't call it back to work because we've been working really hard for the last 12 months. I call it back to the office. Um, but but there's so much that we don't know, right? So I, I think, for example, that part of the success that we've had in the last 12 months with fundraising has been predicated on the fact that our donors are also locked up in their homes right now, but by and large. Um, and so so as as unsavory as it might be, or as as you know, unsatisfying as it might be to have a virtual donor engagement. That our donors are also kind of a captive audience right now, and it's a little bit easier to get access to them than it than it usually is when we're having to fly across country to see that that one donor in in Southern California. Um, what I don't know is what that will look like when things start to loosen back up again and people return to to some semblance of what normal life used to look like. Will our donors still want uh, be open to having a Zoom conversation? Um, or will it return to, uh, you know, everybody expecting personal, personal visits? Um, and, and how are you going to handle the donors that aren't comfortable having strangers in their homes or businesses now? Um, or, or development officers who aren't quite comfortable getting in an airplane yet. So I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around that. I, I do speculate that, um, are that, that, you know, one of the things that we've seen that has been uh, kind of a bright spot for us is uh, and is greater participation in some of our virtual programming, alumni association programming, principal gift gatherings with the, you know, like a, 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 a social hour with the president and his wife, those kinds of things. Uh, folks that wouldn't normally take the time to, you know, to travel into rural central Pennsylvania to sit down for an hour with the president, they will dial in from their homes in Colorado and Washington State, and and in fact, we had a we had an alumni event uh, a couple of months ago where one of the participants was a commander in the Navy and zoomed in from his his ship in the Persian Gulf, which I I, I thought was actually a terrific uh, example of how how we we have an opportunity i think to blend in person and virtual programming so that we can be attractive to our audiences wherever they're at and i think that that's going to be one of the lasting legacies here uh, we won't be able to go back to you know having the on-site event that nobody can dial into because there's going to be a cohort of people who who expect that but but some of the other things i mean it's i just don't know what it's going to look like, you know, in, in, in preparing for this uh, conversation, we had a quick uh, sidebar about, um, you know, at one point I, I had frontline fundraising staff uh, scattered across eight time zones uh, because they had, you know, they had decamped to various places and, and it started to raise questions in my mind. They were still being very effective in, in meeting their metrics. Uh, but, across eight time zones, they weren't even on the same work day anymore, which, you know, started to raise these kind of philosophical questions of, do they have to be in the office? And what is the work day anymore? And do we care if they spend 40 hours a week doing their job, if they still get their job done? I think these are the really big questions that employers, not just in the nonprofit sector, but, but everywhere employers are going to have to grapple with because, um, you know, I think we as a as a society have shown um, maybe maybe some of those old um, maybe some of those old traditions around the work uh, around work uh, have been fundamentally broken in the last twelve months. 
a provocative thought, I probably would be more inclined to bet with you than bet against you. Those we'll see. <laughs> so, Rich, I know this year has been very tough in many, many ways, but I've also heard there have been quite a few silver linings. So many advancement teams having to do so much differently. Lots of them just stumbled upon uh, things that worked really well, silver linings that they didn't expect to find. I'm curious, have you seen any of these silver linings at Penn State? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Um, and, and, and one actually quite recently that I'll, that I'll mention. So uh, anybody who knows anything about Penn State knows that we have the largest student-run philanthropy, uh, I think, in the world uh, called Dance Marathon, or we, we call it THON. Um, which is under normal conditions of 46 hour uh, dance marathon, 17,000 students packed into our basketball arena and it supports uh, children with pediatric cancer and their families. Um, and so, so normally there are also uh, patients and their families in, in the event. Uh, but of course, in the middle of a pandemic, you, you just can't do that. And so our THON student leaders pivoted this year to a, a fully virtual uh, dance marathon, which sounds like it would be impossible to pull off, but they, they pulled off the impossible 46-hour um, live stream uh, that started two weekends ago on, on Friday evening, um, where they broadcast uh, you know, bands and skits and student organizations um, doing doing appeals, and they had a, a talent contest with our student athletes, and it was just terrific programming. It was actually fun to just sit at your computer and watch it. Um, but but where it was from a, a development perspective, where I thought it was really terrific, is they they um, that they significantly enhanced their uh, their crowdfunding uh, donor drive activities. So there was, and an increased their presence on social media in an enormous kind of way. Uh, and the result was that on Friday evening from 6 p.m. until midnight, the first Friday of, of THON, online gifts were up 78% over the previous year, which set an all-time record for one, one day of online uh, fundraising at Penn State. And the next day, they they cleared a million dollars in in online gifts. Uh, so they they broke the record the second day in a row. And and a lot of these gifts, as we understand it, came from Penn State alumni who didn't want to see our students uh, and their hard work fail. So you know, back to my earlier comment about Penn Staters double down. They did again this year. And and at the end of the day on Sunday evening, they announced that they'd raised ten point six million dollars for pediatric cancer. That is really incredible. At the uh, at the conclusion of our time here today, I'm I'm curious for the folks on the line. You know, I've I've worked with you for many years now. Yeah, as a couple institutions, uh, and I've I've known you to have a, a very insightful approach to advancement strategy and you know just fundraising and engagement in general. I, I would love to get a sense from you. What do you think? is maybe the most important piece of advice that you would offer right now to those who lead advancement teams? Uh, you, you know, I think the most uh, most uh, insightful bit of advice that I can give right now, um, and I'm not even really sure how insightful it is, uh, is, is that uh, our, our donors are craving 
their connection to our institutions. Um, and, and whether we're still remote or in some hybrid posture or back to everybody being on our campuses and, and our staff traveling again, the, the quality of that engagement is gonna be critical in terms of keeping uh, growing, um, attracting and retaining uh, uh, not just donors, but our volunteers, our advisory boards. Um, and so I think there needs to, we, we all need to be thinking very critically, not just about how do we get people back out in the field and you know checking the box on their metrics for a personal visit again, but, but really what is the quality of the engagement that we're offering to our, to our stakeholders? Um, and, 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 and it can't be one size fits all. I mean, we, we know uh, that, that it, particularly in higher education where, where your volunteer and donor alumni stakeholders can spend 75, 80 years uh, in their life lifespan uh, relationship with the institution that we have people at every every phase of life, we're going to need to be much more um, uh, facile to what different demographics, what different uh, generations want from their institution, and and then work really hard to provide that. Well said. Well, Rich, thank you very much for joining me today for this conversation. I know I've learned a lot. Uh, so thank you. And to everyone listening in at home, appreciate the time. Take care. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when EAB's Caitlin Maloney and Ron Yanoski explore the future of remote work on college campuses. Until next week, thank you for joining us on Office Hours with EAB.